Well, may the peace of the Lord be with you all. Thank you very much. This Christmas season, what we've been doing is we've been working our way through the book of Luke, and we've been hitting pause when we see the word peace. This peace is not the kind of temporary peace that you find in four, seven, eight breathing, or from a pill or a bottle or scrolling or binging or some other form of distraction or some other form of escape. We long for this kind of peace. We long for the peace that transcends our circumstances. We long for the peace that surpasses understanding. We long for a peace that can keep and guard our hearts and minds. And that's the kind of peace that Jesus of Nazareth cast a vision for. That's the kind of peace that he experienced, and it's the kind of peace that he extends to us if we'll receive it. It's a peace that comes from God himself. It's a peace that the Hebrew word for it is shalom. That even sounds peaceful, doesn't it? Shalom. Well, for the last three weeks, we've been preparing our hearts and homes for the arrival of the Prince of Peace. How many candles do we got left over there? (laughs) We got one. And that candle on this candle countdown, that's the Christmas candle. That's it. So our countdown, we are getting right to the end. The next time that we'll be meeting in this space, it's going to be our Christmas Eve service. Now, we're not going to be moving on to not peace, but this is our last chance when we're really focusing on this topic, when we're opening our Bibles together to look at the word peace. So let's make the most out of the time that we have as we prepare to celebrate the arrival of the Prince of Peace. The passage that we're going to turn to today, it is in the final chapter of the book of Luke. It's there at the end. This word peace, as we're going to look at it in context, this is in Jesus' final summary statement of all the things that have been happening there in the book of Luke. Now, this is it. This is his summary statement with his faithful followers. It's part of a final dialogue where Jesus comes back from the dead. He opens up their minds. He he shows them the scriptures and unlocks those, and then he sends them out. Go change the world. So this piece that we're going to look at today, the context for it, it's remarkable. This piece we're going to look at today, it's a piece even after. It's a piece that comes after they betrayed him, after they denied him. It's a piece that comes after they've blown it. So let's learn how we can experience peace, even after we said that thing that we said. How we can experience peace, even after we did that thing we did. How we can experience peace, even after that secret that we had came into the light. Let's learn how we can experience a peace of God even after. Well, one of the reasons why this teaching matters so much today is there's so few examples around of people doing this well when it comes to, on one end, when it comes to holding people accountable these days. Many of you have probably seen these these examples where There's attempts to cover things up or act like it never happened. There's other examples when it comes to holding people accountable when they've blown it to have different standards for different people based on how powerful they are or based on how much influence they have or based on how much money they have or based on whether they vote like you vote. So that's one extreme. You've got when it comes to people blowing it, there's people who just turn and look the other way. On the other extreme, I've heard of situations in churches where they've had the person come up, public shaming. Do you know what so-and-so did? They're going to now tell you, you know, they're repenting. In front of the whole church. Wow. 
And I've personally seen situations where there's absolutely no grace. There's no support. I'm seeing nods all over the place. Where someone, like we all do, makes mistakes, but there's no sense of, all right, we're in this together. God loves you. We love you. We're going to help cheer you on. We've, we've seen that too. When there's unresolved tension, when there's broken relationships, especially if you're in the same circles with these people, it's almost impossible to experience shalom. Isn't that true? When, when there's that unresolved, I did something, you did something, it's, it's broken, you can't experience shalom. And when there's deep personal pain and guilt and regret and shame because we know what we did and we don't know how to make things right. It's almost impossible in those situations to experience shalom. So this is a really, really, really big deal. Let's do our best then with the time we've got to wrestle with this question. If you're taking notes, I want to invite you to write this down. How do we experience peace on the other side of sin? How do we do that? How, how do we experience peace on the other side of sin? Is it possible to experience peace on the other side of sin? Yes, it is. Is it possible to experience peace even when we fall short of the standards that God has set? Yes. Is it possible to experience peace when we haven't been strong enough to resist temptation or when we crossed a line that we knew was wrong or when we have our eyes just open to go, I didn't know that you took it that way or I didn't know that this would lead to that. Is it possible to experience peace in those situations? Yes, yes, yes. Let's see what we can learn then about reconciliation and restoration from the Prince of Peace. If you have your Bible with you, please open with, with me to Luke chapter 24. So the very last chapter of the book of Luke, the very last section, we're going to start with verse 36. If you don't have a Bible at home, we want to invite you to go. Um, Onlinebible.com has a great free Bible app. I encourage you to download that. All right, as I mentioned, this is the last chapter of the book of Luke. And I don't know if we've ever opened up to the Easter story during the Christmas season before. This might be an ECC first here. Here we go. This comes after Jesus was betrayed by his disciples. They abandoned him when the soldiers and temple guards came to arrest him. Peter denied even knowing Jesus that night. And as far as we know, only John was even present as Jesus took his last breath. So the disciples... The context here, they've been hiding behind locked doors. They're scared. They're confused. They're probably experiencing guilt and shame. But then these reports start trickling in in the book of Luke. They start trickling in about, we saw him. You guys, we saw him. So as they're trying to make sense of all these reports that are coming in, this happens, verses 36 and 37. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, what did he say? The very first thing he said. All the betrayal, all that, the very first thing he said, peace be with you. But they were startled, and they were frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. That first Easter, the disciples had the same response to Jesus that the shepherds had when the angels came and said, peace. Same response. The disciples now were about to experience a peace even after. Peace after the betrayal. Peace after the denial. Peace after not rising to the occasion. Peace after doing the very things that Jesus warned them about. If any can relate to any of that, you could use some hope. Then let's 
Look at this good news. Let's go back to our text. We'll go verses 38 through 42. 38 through 42. So Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you got anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled fish. These words might sound familiar because we circled through them at Easter. This whole thing had them so completely bewildered that Luke describes them as disbelieving for joy. A phrase that I've only ever seen here. It was this wondrous mix of emotions. That phrase that we looked at last Easter, it's the kind of peace that Jesus was extending. It was so unique. This peace was so wonderful. This peace and this event was so needed. It was so seemingly impossible that they disbelieved for joy. Jesus begins then now to help them process all of this. Let's look at verses 44 through 45. And Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Open their minds. Wow. All right. Um, so he opens their eyes, it says. He opens their minds to understand what they were experiencing then was part of a divine unfolding plan. I came across this quote as I was studying this passage. I love this imagery. Here's the quote. Jesus underscores the truth of the resurrection and ensures that the disciples grasp fully how the past, present, and future of God's activity, and here's the phrase I love. They belong to one great mural of salvation. Luke is creating this mural in his narrative, one great mural of salvation. Isn't that great imagery? God is doing this wonderful work, and it's all part of one big unfolding mural. Now, here's our part in it. Here's our part in it. Verses 45 through 47. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. If you've ever read through the book of Luke, you know that this is not the first time we see that word repentance. Scenes of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, they are strategically placed in that mural all the way through, all the way through. In fact, I think the book of Luke contains more references to repentance than any other book of the Bible. If not, it's close. For example, chapter 3, way at the beginning, John prepares the way for Jesus. He's proclaimed the way for Jesus. What does he do? He proclaims a message of, quote, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, oh, and by the way, if it's real, produce fruit in keeping with your repentance, he says. Early in his ministry, Jesus makes it clear he's come to call sinners to repentance. There's more than a dozen references to repentances woven into Luke's mural. Repentance. That's how we get the peace. That's how we experience peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. 
And if that's something that you want, you want that peace, something's not right between you and God, not right between you and someone else, here are some core components for biblical repentance. And you might want to write these down. Peace. It's possible after a fall if we do these things. Number one, name and confess what you've done. It all starts there. And what I'm going to challenge you to do is not one of those general, well, I messed up. If you want to experience the real power, name it. The number of people I've talked to over the last year who said, this is so important. Like, it was as if a weight came off my shoulders when I just named it and confessed it. There was something powerful. It was almost like something was broken in that moment. When you're clear and when you're sincere, it can be like a huge weight is lifted which is why almost every communion Sunday, we proclaim, as we've instructed here in Scripture, we proclaim repentance for forgiveness. We proclaim this truth directly from 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. We teach it to you so that you can also proclaim this. In fact, I'll say it, and if you, you've got it from memory, see if you can say it along with me. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's in our hearts. It's in our minds. It's truth. It's truth from Scripture. So that brings us to number two. Is it possible to receive peace after the fall? Yes. After you're confessing it, receive it. It's there. It's a gift. It's a promise. It's there for you. When your confession is clear and it's sincere, God forgives our sins. Another scene in that mural that Luke paints, it's found in Luke 23, one chapter before this. Here's another scene in the mural. A criminal, this is in Luke. A criminal's on the cross. And, and the, the one, there's another criminal, and the other criminal's mocking Jesus. The other criminal says, no, 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 no. What we've done is wrong. And then he says to Jesus, what you have done, you've done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Does anyone know what Jesus says in that moment? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Forgiven. Right there in that moment. Now, do we just stop at number two? No. <laughs> do, do we just be cool with, hey, everyone makes mistakes. Said I'm sorry. Let's move on. Y you could, but I've never seen people experience shalom peace then. I've seen people experience a false sense of peace. There's more to that. And, and so here's the next thing I would encourage you. Seek support. Seek support from people who can help you, who can walk with you. How many of you know we need more than good intentions? I wake up every morning and say, I'm only going to have one Diet Coke today. <laughs> and on my fifth one, I say, tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> I got good intentions, good intentions. If you ever tried to change, you know this. You know it's hard. So let's help one another. It's, let's help one another. We all need it. There are strongholds that are not easily broken. There are blind spots that are easy to miss. We need people who will walk with us, people who can help us identify, okay, you got where you got because you're on a journey. Let's go back. Let's see if there's some patterns. Let's see if there's some behaviors. Let's see if there's some things that we can make adjustments to help as we go forward so that we don't just keep repeating these habits. Let's find people who can equip us 
to help make better decisions going forward. And people who not only hold us accountable, but are cheering us on too at the same time. People who can help us with core component number four, which is to establish new guardrails and rhythms of authentic and consistent communion. I loaded this up with wordplay on purpose. Wise people who truly want change build guardrails into their lives. Example, if you're tempted to steal, don't volunteer to be the church treasurer, right? <laughs> if you have trouble with confidentiality, you don't join the prayer team. It's just right, guardrails. Wise people don't only do that, they also build rhythms of authentic and consistent communion into their life. There's the wordplay, communion. Beautiful word, wide range of meaning. There's the communion that we have with one another. We build it into our lives. Are you regularly meeting with people who you can be real with and honest with, who, who love you enough to be able to say, hey, how are you doing in that area? And again, people that you're not just going to feel shame, you know they're there to help cheer you on. And then communion, holy communion. One of the reasons we offer it on a regular basis is because it's a moment where you just can pause and we give space, we build it in, where we say, am I drifting off course? Because it's rare to drift way off course all at once. It's usually a little bit at a time. To have those sincere rhythms where you're building it in, okay, God, I'm back, I'm back. Peace is possible even after a fall when repentance is real. All right, so what I've been describing so far is if, if it's something that you've done, it's more personal, it's more private, it isn't hurting anybody, these are the pieces. But almost always, if we've done something that fits in that category of breaking a commandment that God has, it almost always affects somebody else. So we have a second section, second section here, uh, if you caused harm section. And it starts with number one, which is <laughs> see above, <laughs> right? So we've already covered that ground. We can check that one off. Way to go. Number two is so important. Give people time and space to heal. Give people time. As I was reflecting on this one, I was reminded of what people used to say about concussions. Football coaches back in the day, even in my day, I mean, you, you get out there and you'd come and you're like, how many fingers are holding up? You're like, coach, I, what? You know, it's like, oh, you just got your bell rung, they would say. Get back in there, you know? Oh my gosh, shake it off, they would say. Be, you know, so when there's trauma, it's wrong to simply tell someone, shake it off. Be a good Christian. Forgive them. When there's trauma... It's not that simple. When there's trauma, physical or mental, we risk further injury when we send someone back into that situation where they continue to be exposed to the source of their injury. There almost always needs to be time. If you cause harm and you're truly sorry, Scripture says we should see the fruit of that. And part of the fruit is to give people time and space. And also number three picks up on that theme. If you caused harm, demonstrate sincerity and trustworthiness. There's another scene in Luke's mural. It involves a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man who was involved in a profession where corruption was common. After an afternoon with Jesus, Zechariah made this visible and public declaration. He said, behold, he said, right here, right now, I'm going to give half of everything to the poor. Right here, right now, if I have wronged 
anyone. And he's saying this in public, going on record. If I've wronged anyone, I will pay them back four times. That's in that mural. Trust is not rebuilt by, will you trust me? Trust is rebuilt by consistency over time. That's, or rebuilt as well. All right, there's one more core component to repentance. If you cause harm to someone else, here it is. Receive their forgiveness. What did we put in parentheses there? If it's offered to you. Now this one, full disclosure, I had help with this last one. Because as I was first working this, I've been trying um, to uh, put some conscious thought into how can we help our church become better at this? How can we become a church community where we're really helping one another? Because we all make mistakes. As we make mistakes, how do we help restore what's broken? So I've been working on that, and I've been bringing a model to different people to show. And I brought my working model to the pastoral relations committee. In my first draft of this, it said, okay, it's different than with God, we receive forgiveness. When it comes to the person we've harmed, we should ask forgiveness. And, and they were gracious, and they listened. But then they said, actually you can do some additional harm, especially if you do that too soon. Because what can happen frequently is you're saying, I'm sorry, now will you forgive me? Now, consciously or subconsciously or subtly, what have you done? You said, now it's on you. I've done my part. So now if you don't say, I forgive you, you're the one, I'm the victim. I'm like, I didn't even think through that lens before. Never even thought through that. My executive assistant, Mindy, she found an excellent article on this. The name of the article is How to Move from Forgiveness to Reconciliation. It's by Steve Cornell. Here's a quote from this great article. He says, the process of reconciliation depends on the attitude of the offender, the depth of the betrayal, and the pattern of offense. When an offended party works towards reconciliation, the first and most important step is the confirmation of genuine repentance on the part of the offender. And he references what book? References Luke. Luke 17, 3 says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, your sister sins, rebuke them. If they repent, then forgive them. And so then Cornell goes on to unpack, okay, if they're really repenting, what does that look like? What does it look like? What does it not look like? So here's some more from that, that article. An unrepentant offender will resent your desire to confirm the genuineness of his confession and repentance. The offender may resort to lines of manipulation, such as some Christian you are. I thought Christians believed in love and compassion. Such language reveals an unrepentant heart. There are seven signs, he says, that indicate an offender is genuinely repentant, accepts full responsibility for his or her actions. Number two, welcomes accountability from others. Three, does not continue in the hurtful behavior or anything associated with it. Number three, Four, does not have a defensive attitude about being in the wrong. Number five, does not dismiss or downplay the hurtful behavior. Six, does not resent doubts about their sincerity or the need to demonstrate sincerity, especially in cases involving repeat offenses. And number seven, makes restitution where necessary. <laughs> I can tell you this person is not just doing theory here. This person's had experience. These resonate deep. If you've hurt somebody, recognize it might take a long, 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 long time before they've had enough time for healing to take place. So give them time. And along the way, as much as it depends on you, the scripture says, demonstrate that this is real, this is sincere. 
that you recognize I've made a mistake and I've changed. All right, let's go back to our text. Verses 45 to 47. I think these uh, were ones that we read at least part of this here. Um, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it's written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. All right, I, I brought us back to this because this is the beginning of Luke's version of the Great Commission. And where does it start? It starts with peace and then with, okay, now repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The implication here is that the followers of Jesus are now going to go and they're going to proclaim this good news, that this is good news, that we can make things right with God and one another through what Christ has done and what he instructs us to do. It's really interesting. A great commission gives this um, this this push out of the eagle's nest to go and to start to share these things with others. And a lot of people, when that happens, we're like, oh, but I can't because, you know, I, I feel like I don't have the answers or, or if I get asked tough questions, I won't be able to respond. I tell you, some of the best evangelists on the planet are not the people who've got confidence in their theological acumen. In fact, sometimes those are the worst Right? The ones who are like, I know it all, and they come across as judgmental and all these types of things. Often the people who are the best at sharing their faith, they're just telling their story. I made a lot of mistakes. I still do. But Jesus sought me out. He forgave my sin. He's changing my life for the better. Isn't that usually, that's some of the best that there is. I don't know anything better as far as a witness, than a changed life. And on the other side, I don't know anything worse than someone who identifies as Christian but is acting very differently than Jesus taught and modeled. Repentance. This is so beautiful. It's the path to peace. It's also the path to joy path to joy. The book of Luke closes with this. Here's how the book of Luke closes. And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great what? Joy. And were continually in the temple praising God. It was so insightful to study this passage. I never noticed the Christmas parallels before. Luke's mural begins in chapter 1. Chapter 1 begins in the temple where a multitude of people are praying expectantly. They're hoping to hear from God and the angel appears to Zechariah. And then fast forward a little bit later, an angel appears the first Christmas Eve with tidings of great joy. Where does Luke's mural begin? At the temple shortly thereafter with tidings of great joy. How does it end? Where are they? They're at the temple. What is there? Great joy. The Christmas promise came to pass. Christmas promise came to pass. Joy to the world. Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. There's just one blank left in your notes. Here it is. When you sincerely repent, you're joining God in his restoration work. If I've learned anything about broken relationships over the years, I've learned it's almost impossible to have peace when there's a key relationship in your life that's broken. 
when you commit yourself fully, fully, I'm all in, to do your part, you're joining God in the kind of work that he loves to bless. And you're going to discover you're not in this alone. You're not in this alone. He can bring healing and joy that you might once have thought was impossible. And you become part of that mural that a broken world needs to see. Let's close with this quote. This is so good. Repentance, forgiveness of sins are not therefore simply a matter of individual. They are the agenda which can change the world. Today's world is full of disputes, large and small, only a few of which get into the newspapers. Nations, ethnic groups, political fashions, tribes, economic alliances, they struggle for supremacy. Each can tell stories of the atrocities committed by their opponents. Each one claims they therefore have the right to the moral high ground. They must be allowed redress, revenge, and satisfaction. But as anyone who's studied the complicated history of the Middle East, Rwanda, Northern Ireland will know, it is simply impossible to give an account of the conflict in which one side is responsible for all the evil and the other side is a completely innocent victim. The only way forward is the one that we all find the hardest at every level. Repentance and forgiveness. The resolute application of the gospel under the lordship of the risen Christ is the only way forward towards the creation of new hope and possibilities. Jesus promised his followers they would be equipped with power from God to engage in their new tax, tasks. The book of Acts is the story of what began to happen as a result. But Luke's gospel ends as it began at a temple in Jerusalem. Worship of the living God now revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. It is at the heart of Luke's vision of the Christian life. In other words, people need to see this Thing lived out. What we try to do as a community here, the world needs to see this. So let's commit ourselves to that end. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Thank you for giving us the truth in your word. Thank you that you didn't just give some sort of superficial nod to a concept called peace but rather you've pointed us towards where shalom can be found. It's found in you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd open our minds, open our hearts, that we truly would receive you this Christmas, the Prince of Peace, into our lives, into our hearts, and that we could be that witness that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.